Hi, everyone. I'm Devin McDonald, a partner at OpenView, where I spend a lot of time talking to both aspiring and serial board members. This season on Build, we're talking about the journey to the boardroom. Each week, I'll speak with executives who will share their unique stories and insights to help you either consider what type of persona to bring onto your board if you're a CEO, and or help you think through what your path will be to get to the boardroom as an independent director. Sadly, this is the last episode of season four, but not to worry. We have a special guest next week, and we will take a short break in between seasons. At the end of this episode, I'm going to give you a sneak peek into season five. Now, on with the show. Today, we're joined by Jim Baum, who is a venture partner at OpenView. Jim has had over 25 years experience leading and scaling successful technology companies. Prior to his venture partner role with OpenView, he was the CEO of Natiza, which he took public and then ultimately sold to IBM back in 2010 for nearly $2 billion. Prior to that, he was the CEO of Indeca, which also was wildly successful and uh, sold to Oracle. Started off early days of his career at PTC, as many successful software execs in our network uh, have done themselves. And we are just so delighted to have him here today to talk about his career and his board experiences, both building his boards as well as joining boards himself. Jim, thank you so much for joining and great to have you here today. Well, thanks for having me, Devin. It's great to be here. So you've had a successful career as a CEO, board member, and now venture partner. But what I want to do is go back to your early days. I've kicked off all of our podcast episodes with the same question. And the question is, what did you want to be when you grew up? That's a really hard question. You know, when I was a kid, uh, I certainly had no idea that I would be an executive in the technology industry. But I, but I think I did know that I'd be doing something entrepreneurial. I was always somebody who didn't really want to have a, you know, a job with an established company and, you know, sort of learn by the rules of the company and grow up through the ranks. That just was never me. So I guess I knew that. I, I would say that my career over the years has been a, a series of opportunistic decisions that I've made based on whatever information was available to me at the time. It certainly was not charted out uh, in any way. And, uh, you know, I started out my career at PTC and PTC created a number of just great opportunities for young people like myself. And honestly, we ended up in jobs that we had no business being in whatsoever. It was total OJT and we had to learn, you know, how to do the jobs we had uh, while we were doing them. And it was uh, honestly just a phenomenal experience. It's crazy how many great executives have come out of PTC. I think between whatever tra- training program they had in place there and uh, whatever they were doing to develop the town, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, there was no training program, Devin. It was uh, <laughs> you, 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 you either sunk or swam. Those of us that survived, we're the ones that came out, continued to grow on the job and whatnot. But yeah, it was very much, it was a, it was a very aggressive and very entrepreneurial environment. And so, you know, basically the leadership of the company bet on people. You know, they bet on talent, they bet on raw intellect, they bet on drive and competitiveness. And then those bets, you know, put the people that they bet on into jobs that, you know, we really didn't know much about, but we figured it out. You know, we figured it out on the job. Do you often think back to your PTC days? Do you think it really kind of shaped who you are as a a business person today? I think back to my PTC days and the people I worked with every day. To be honest, when I was working in operating roles, I would look back at PTC oftentimes and and I would use it 
the learnings from that experience as a framework to think about decision-making and lots of lessons that came out of that environment. And sometimes that framework gave me insight into what the right decision would be. And sometimes that framework gave me insight into what the wrong decision would be, right? And so it sort of worked both ways. But yeah, it was an invaluable experience. It was uh, 11 years of my life where I was able to participate in the growth of a company from $10 million in revenue to over a billion dollars in revenue. It was not planned. It's just I happened to um, have an opportunity there. I took the job and things went well and, and I continually had new opportunities put in front of me. So I stayed as long as I did because, you know, we all kept growing together. It's interesting, a lot of us who worked at that company, especially during that time, we all look back on it and, and we talk about having grown up at PTC and we say we grew up together at PTC and we really did because we were, uh, we were figuring ourselves out and figuring business out and figuring out what it was like to operate in a high growth environment and it was just the, the best learning experience I could have possibly hoped for and like I said, I never planned for but it worked out to be exactly that. So you moved up the ranks at uh, PTC and in 2001, you started joining some boards, the board of open ratings and proficiency. Was joining the boards at that time intentional or opportunistic? How did those how did those opportunities come about? It was intentional that I wanted to join a board. Um, those particular boards were opportunistic. I, I also joined one board before I left PTC. I left PTC in the year 2000. And I did join the board of a company that PTC had invested in. And so I was sort of the the, the PTC representative on that board, and, and we had invested in a company that was uh, building a business around some of our technology. And so that was really my my first board experience. And then when I was out of PTC, had taken a little bit of time off, and these board opportunities came along. Um, and I wanted to join boards because I really wanted to learn from the other side of the table, so to speak. I'd spent a lot of time in operational roles, had presented to our board on occasion at PTC, and uh, I really felt it would be important to me as I sort of rounded myself out to, to, to see the world from the other side of that table. And what surprised you about those experiences? A few things, actually. I think in one of the surprises there was, frankly, the amount of posturing that got done between management and board members. And, you know, these are small companies, and so the boards are largely investor-dominated. And so, um, you know, I think I was witness to some of the dynamics between investors and management teams where I think maybe the management team was concerned about, you know, optics with the investor and was sort of trying to optimize the view into the business. And I think maybe the investors were maybe a little concerned about the management team. And so these were situations that it surprised me a little bit. It was a little bit less transparent than I had, uh, than I had expected. Well, who are some people that were influencing you in your earlier days or even throughout your career? What advice really kind of stands out to you? Might have been from your PTC days or, or even beyond. Well, I think a lot of the lessons that I reflect on oftentimes come from advice and mentors that I had at PTC. You know, one of those mentors was the original CEO of PTC, a guy named Steve Walski, who um, he was the CEO of the company from zero to a billion in revenue. A remarkable guy, very business-minded, very smart. And Steve was definitely an influence on me. You know, sort of many lessons came from him. Uh, Dick Harrison, who was the original VP of sales and later the chief operating officer, and then after that, the CEO of PTC, 
also someone who really taught not just me, but all of us uh, who grew up there together a lot. Um, and then there were a lot of personalities there, people who were just really smart, really good at what they did, that taught us all a lot of lessons about product development and about go-to-market and about building and operating a sales organization. And so those were all you know, people that, that uh, I say we all, because many of us were there, learned from over the years. I often reflect on Dick and Steve and uh, the things that, uh, that I learned from them. So you said they were smart and just great businessmen. What was like a defining characteristic of those people that just really set them apart from your typical, your typical executive or CEO? The first word that comes to mind when you ask me that question, Devin, is the word competitive. Mm. This company and these leaders were some of the most competitive people I've ever met. They really instilled that in the organization. The second word that comes to mind really is empathy. As I think about Dick Harrison in particular, you know, Dick is a, he's a very empathetic human being. He really understands people and he really understands what makes them tick and what motivates them and how to get the most from them. And frankly, it all translated into leadership. The leadership in this company was very, very good. And we were all there for the same reason. We were all there because we were building a great company. And that was the style of leadership that both Dick and Steve brought to the organization. And we all bought into it, and that's what we did. We built a great company. Were they constantly painting the vision, or was there just so much momentum that it was a rocket ship? It was the rocket ship. You know, the the, the vision piece of it really came later as we were looking at kind of, you know, maybe what markets are next after the CAD CAM marketplace. And we started to explore other markets like PLM. And we made some big investments there and some big bets there. And there was a lot of sort of visionary selling at that time. But really, the core of the business was built on really strong, solid, efficient execution on all cylinders, right? Every part of that organization, the product development team, the product management team, the sales team, the marketing team, the customer success and support teams. It was very, very well operated. So our wins were celebrated oftentimes in the in the form of operational successes, be that customer wins or be that beating the quarter, either on revenue or on operating margin. We really focused a lot on the operations of the business. So fast forward uh, a few years, uh, you've now been the CEO of Indeca and Atiza. How did you build, engage, and leverage your board for both those companies as they scaled and ultimately had really great outcomes? Yeah, I mean, uh, as in many sort of venture-backed startup environments, those boards are dominated by investors. And so I think the first part of answering that question goes back before the board exists to when you're thinking about raising capital and and raising and adding a board member in the form of an investor. And so I think from that perspective, it's just so important to think about not just the capital that's being provided and the terms of the capital that are being provided, but the cultural fit and the chemistry with the person who's going to join the board are these people that, you know, you can work with and that you feel can add value beyond the, the check that they're writing. And so we thought a lot about those things. You know, we thought a lot about, is this someone who can add value to our company beyond the check, right? And so I, I think that was sort of 
point number one. And then uh, certainly later on at Natiza, we we brought in uh, a number of independent, and and even when I joined the company, there were a number of independent board members, and we had a we had a great board at Natiza, and it was a combination of uh, independents and investor board members. And really what we looked for now in the independents are uh, people who could bring perspective to the board discussion that we wouldn't otherwise have. And in our case, at that time, that perspective was the voice of the customer. And so we went out to look for people who could both bring that perspective of being a customer and what it's like to acquire this kind of technology. What are the things you're thinking about and what are the constraints that you have? And, and also, frankly, we wanted their network, right? I mean, can you can you bring us new customers, right? You know, if you're the CIO of a large corporation uh, and you're going to join our board, geez, we'd sure hope that your network is friendly and can help us, you know, find some other new customers as well. And so we ran an, an interesting process to bring these board members in. We used a search firm. This is at Natiza. We used a search firm. We were a public company. We were growing nicely. We were pretty exciting tech story in the market. We leveraged the fact that we were recruiting for outside board members through a recruiter. And we were actually able to get meetings with CIOs who we never, ever would have gotten a meeting with uh, if we hadn't had this offer. And so we ended up with about 20 great CIO meetings that actually resulted in a bunch of revenue for us. And we ended up bringing one of those CIOs onto the board. And it was a great strategy. And uh, and, and actually, the, the hardest part was um, explaining to the 19 other CIOs why they weren't the right choice. But we navigated through that. So back in 2014, you joined Dine as the executive chairman. And for a period of time, you stepped in as the CEO. Would love to hear about that experience and the lessons learned there and really what it was like to be on the board and then transition into a CEO role and ultimately guide the business through a massive sale to Oracle for what is reported publicly as as north of half a billion dollar outcome. I joined the board at Dine as part of sort of my current professional strategy, which is I'm, I'm investing my time now working in board and advisory roles like I do here at OpenView. And Dine was one of those. And Dine had accepted investment from Northbridge Growth Capital. And uh, they had gone a long time without taking any professional investment. So the company was very well established and, and honestly already a leader in its space when uh, Northbridge Growth Capital invested. And so there was a lot that had already been built there. But one of the things that really had not been built there was a, a board of sort of people who are from the tech industry and thought a lot about B2B software sales and technology and product development. And so when Northbridge got involved, they started to work with the CEO and founder there to, to help fill out that, that board and that function. And so we brought in a number of uh, independent board members who brought different things to the party. And, and I was one of them. And, and honestly, a big part of my role was to work very closely with the CEO to sort of help him navigate the waters ahead as the company scaled beyond $100 million in revenue. But it really was a, a collection of people who came together with very different and complementary skill sets to help provide the perspective to that board and to the company to help it figure out its growth strategy beyond $100 million. I joined as an independent, and then I emerged into that role. I, I got very involved with the CEO and the management team there, particularly working on strategy. So Dyn is a company that was selling DNS services to businesses, and it's a, a market that was becoming increasingly challenging because this DNS service was increasingly bundled in with cloud providers' offerings. And so we had a challenge. What's the, you know, d determining our strategy to go forward in the face of a market that was really sort of commodity 
commoditizing underneath us. So I ended up spending a lot of time working on strategy with the team there and, and with a couple of other investors in particular. And that process kind of led to an offer from the CEO and from the rest of the board to, to serve as the executive chairman. And the idea there really was to spend a couple of days a week, you know, not full time, but really invest a lot more time and go a lot deeper with the company and become more a part of it. It was a great job, by the way. I loved that role. And so at a certain point, you transitioned into the interim CEO role. So you got to see both sides of the table. Yeah, I did. Would love to hear about that experience and any sort of lessons learned there. It was an interesting transition. I ended up in the interim CEO role for about nine months. And it was during that period of time that we sold the company. The transition was, I think it was helped by the fact that I had already developed Uh, very close and trusted relationships with the other board members uh, and with the other investors. And so I think that I was able to go into that role with a lot of support and trust and respect from the rest of the board. What I had to do, however, was once I was in the job was earn the trust and respect of the team, which was, you know, I hadn't spent as much time there. And so a lot of the effort was, figuring out the team, figuring out the business, figuring out where the opportunities were, and then making decisions. And and I, again, I, I found that in that context, I, I had a lot of support from the board because I had these existing relationships. But it was interesting. The dynamic changed. You know, suddenly I owned the number. It wasn't me looking across the table to the CEO and saying, you know, what happened in Q2? Suddenly it was them looking <laughs> at me saying, hey, what happened in Q2? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it, it was a little bit of a different dynamic. It has strong start, you know, good foundation to start from. So you've been a trustee of WPI for a number of years. And the question comes up from time to time, what is is having experience on a nonprofit board a good introduction to the world of private board seats or even public board seats? Yes. There are mixed opinions about it, but I would love to get yours. It's a great question, Devin. And so I think to directly answer your question, I don't think so. I don't feel like my experience on a university board has anything whatsoever to do with my experience on a private or even public company board. Um, and the reason for that is that the processes are so different, right? In a, in a, in a not-for-profit or university environment, we're really there as advisors. Yes, we're fiduciaries. You know, we certainly carry some liability and obligation. But at the end of the day, these boards tend to be very large. They tend to be dominated by sort of the group dynamic. And frankly, the the operational dynamics in universities and not-for-profits are really different. You know, in a board meeting of a $10 million software company, we can make a decision, and that decision can be implemented a week later. In a board meeting of a large enterprise like a like a not-for-profit university you can make a decision and you know you're lucky if the if it's been implemented in two years right it just moves at a very very different pace and so i think it's really different and i also think that given the compact nature of a technology or software company board you can each individual is more impactful whereas on these large university boards you know, some individuals are more impactful than others, but it's a it's a very large group dynamic. And so I think the skill sets are different, right? You're influencing a large group versus you're really able to kind of directly influence the execution of the business in a in a in a corporate board environment. That makes sense. 
So back in 2015, you joined OpenView. I did. The pleasure of getting to work with you more as a venture partner. And now you sit on a number of OpenView's boards, including Logs.io, Project 44, and AppTools. Can you tell us about that experience? I'm sure people are very curious what it's like to then go into the role of this quasi-investor, right? Would like to hear about that experience and what that's been like for you. You know, when I joined OpenView, I had already joined a number of boards as an independent. And I was really kind of crafting an identity around being an indie board member in, you know, business-to-business software companies, most of them SaaS companies. The OpenView platform for me created an opportunity, I think, to have a much broader view of the industry and of the market and to be able to associate myself with companies that were, you know, more thoroughly vetted, frankly, Mm -hmm. because the, the research is so good here and the investment dynamic is so good here. But the dynamic on the board's was a little bit different, I noticed. So when I'm an independent board member, my thing, you know, the way I position myself and the way I like to work with companies is I like to be, you know, a confidant of the CEO. I like to be, you know, sort of part of the inner circle. And I like to try to add value because as being part of the inner circle, I know everything that's going on and I have some perspective. And in many cases, maybe I've dealt with whatever issue or situation the the, the CEO or management team are dealing with. And I like that role. I really enjoy that. When you join the board of a company in the seat of the investor, it's a little bit different, right? It's not completely different. You know, I still like to interact this way. And I think the CEOs of the companies that I work with, you know, we've developed a great rapport and we can do that. But it's not assumed, right? It's uh, suddenly you're the investor and uh, not the independent confidant. And so you have to go earn that. You have to go earn that trust and respect. And you have to sort of get through the issue. It just takes a little bit more time yeah. to that trust that maybe initially had come a little bit earlier for you and your other board. That's right. And I think I'm guilty of this myself when I was operating as a CEO. You sort of always look at your investor board member as constantly evaluating you, mm-hmm. right? Because what's the only operational thing you can do as a board member? You can hire and fire the CEO, right? That's the only thing you really get to do. And so I think as a CEO, you're acutely aware of that. And so you're always trying to kind of position yourself. I see that as, uh, you know, as an investor board member. But again, you know, through style and rapport and chemistry, you build trust over time and you build those relationships. And so, uh, you know, in all three of those cases you mentioned, I, you know, have now emerged in, a, in the place I like to be, which is really able to work closely in a trusted relationship with the management team. What advice do you have for aspiring board members? How can you best develop the right skills for sitting in a, in a board seat? And how do you market yourself to actually get the opportunity in the first place? Well, I think the first thing I would recommend is that you do it. And I always feel like as an operating executive, whether you're the CEO or the head of marketing or the head of sales or the head of development or customer success or whatever executive role, I think sitting on a board is a great opportunity to learn from others, right? I mean, we all develop our own way of working and and everyone does it a little bit differently. And I think when you sit on a board, you get to broaden your perspective by understanding how others do it without you yourself feeling like you're being scrutinized for how you're doing the work. You, you get to sort of be on the evaluating team, not on the evaluated team. And it really does help your perspective. And you see different investors and different investor styles and different board members and their styles. To do that, it usually is a domain thing, right? It's usually like, 
you know, they're looking for someone to join the board who has a specific expertise in pharma or there's, or a specific expertise in go to market or a specific expertise in whatever. That's usually how those things come to be. And so I think those are really important. And it certainly helped me as a professional sort of expand my perspective to, again, understand what's happening from the other side of the table. I think once you've done that, then I think these these positions can become available to you. And again, it's sort of a question of what value do you bring to the board? And and oftentimes it's either functional expertise or it's domain expertise in a, in a particular industry domain. I find that investors often like having strong operators on boards with them. And, and the reason for that is that the investors themselves normally don't have the perspective of the operator because many of them haven't been operators. But they want that perspective on the board to help either mentor or to help guide and steer conversation. I also find that oftentimes CEOs like having operators on their board to help sometimes bridge the communication from the operator's perspective to the investor on the board. I've been in that role a lot where, you know, having the operational background, you're able to kind of sometimes, frankly, side with the CEO and say, no, no, this is right. This is this is what we should be doing right now, where it might not be sort of completely obvious, right? So it can really benefit both sides of that, that gap that sometimes exists between perspectives on boards. My final question today is around advice for a CEO who is assembling his or her own board for the first time. I think you've mentioned a bit bringing on that sort of independent with that operator experience where you might have a gap in your business could be a great idea. But any other advice that you have, particularly for an expansion stage CEO um, as they're assembling their board? Yeah. First of all, do it. I think independents are really important. I don't see a lot of expansion stage companies really focus on it, right? It sort of like falls to the back burner. But be deliberate about it. And and what I mean by that is just like hiring anyone on your management team or in your company, think carefully about the characteristics of the individual that you want, right? In some cases, people look to bring diversity to the board for the sake of bringing diversity to the board. I would argue that's not a good strategy, right? Bring diversity to the board, but bring it in the context of characteristics that can really be helpful to you in the business. And so be deliberate, be deliberate about what you want. Maybe you're in a company that really needs someone who has tremendous go-to-market expertise in a particular type of industry vertical. Figure that out and go find that person. And don't just take the first person you find. I mean, board opportunities are interesting to people. And so it gives you an opportunity to talk to a lot of people you might not otherwise be able to talk to. You're going to get someone that says, no, thank you. I don't want to chat. If you reach out to them and say, hey, there's a board opportunity. would love to chat. Exactly. And so it's a great tool for networking that can help you build the business. And then also, I think the whole issue around the personal relationship and chemistry is pretty important, right? I mean, it's important that you bring someone to the board who complements the the personality of the board. And in, in some cases, you may want to bring someone who is, maybe you're trying to move the personality of the board a little bit, right? In some cases, maybe you're trying to retain it. But I think it's very important to think about the the, the chemistry, the, the, the personal interaction style that you bring to the board. And I think the last thought I would share with you is this whole issue of board observers. Oftentimes as companies grow, the, the consolation prize for investors who don't necessarily invest enough to, to, to get a board seat or to warrant a board seat is that they're given observer status on the board. And so you may end up to a situation where you have five board members and five observers, 
right? And suddenly it's a really big room, right? And it starts to feel more like your board meetings are a presentation and a show than they are a working session where you're thinking through and solving real problems just because you have too many people in the room. And so watch out for that, Mm -hmm. right? I think that you you want to craft this board very carefully. You know, who are the people there that can really help you scale the company through their network, through their experience, through their domain knowledge, through their financial knowledge, through their ability to support the company in whatever ways are valuable to it. And then just keep those people in the room. Really good advice and not often spoken about that sort of observer role. I like the idea of keeping the room tight. I'm sure it allows for much better conversations. Definitely does. Well, this has been great today, Jim. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us about your very successful career and everything you've done in the world of of board opportunities. So thank you. Well, thanks, Devin. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning in. Season five begins in two weeks, and our new host will be Blake Bartlett. Blake will be speaking with tech leaders to hear firsthand how they've leveraged a product-led growth model to put product at the center of their acquisition, conversion, and expansion strategies. He'll be chatting with leaders from top PLG, as we call it, companies like Slack, Trello, Dropbox, and more. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And please give us a five-star rating. We'd greatly appreciate it. Outside of podcasts, we produce content daily on OpenView Labs. And you can also follow us on Twitter at OpenView Venture and subscribe to our newsletter that's sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning by going to openviewpartners forward slash newsletter. Until next time.